0: morning. I want to say a Merry Christmas to all of you and remind you again that we'll be having Christmas Eve services here tomorrow at uh, four o'clock and at six o'clock. And I know that uh, a lot of folks are going to be heading out of town uh, between now and then. And I do hope and pray that you will have a fantastic Christmas. Good morning to those of you who are at our Mill Creek campus, those who are watching online by television here at our Sugarloaf campus. Glad that you came here this morning you know there's several things you can always count on seeing during the christmas season it's just going to happen houses are covered up with christmas lights highways covered up with christmas traffic malls covered up with christmas shoppers fields covered up with christmas trees kids covered up with christmas toys and one of the most amusing things to me that you always see every christmas is this phrase right Let's put Christ back into Christmas. You'll see it on a bumper sticker. You'll see it on a car. You'll see it on a billboard. You'll see it on a sweatshirt. And and I always get kind of amused when when I see that slogan because if you truly understand Christmas, you can't take Christ out of Christmas. Now, you can take Christ out of Christmas and not understand Christmas. But to truly understand Christmas, you cannot take Christ out of Christmas. I mean, think about it. It's not Santa moss, it's not Frosty the Snowman moss, it's not Rudolph the Reindeer moss, it is Christmas. So it'd be like saying, let's put the tomato back in tomato soup. Let's put the bananas back into banana pudding. I mean, you cannot have one without the other. And that's why we've been in this series that we've been calling Christmas Unwrapped because I believe that far too many people unwrap Christmas gifts, but they never unwrap the gift of Christmas. You know, it's kind of interesting how we made Christmas such a big deal, and I think that we should, but here's what's amazing. The early church never celebrated the birth of Christmas. As a matter of fact, the earliest celebration of Christmas we can find in history occurred 300 years after Jesus was born. And yet it was because of his birth and only because of his birth that Christmas became a holiday tradition. And yet I'll tell you what just blows my mind. Think about this. There are about about two and a half billion people on this planet. They will stop everything they're doing in a couple of days and they will celebrate this son of a carpenter who was born in a truck stop town, didn't even have a stoplight. His parents were a teenage girl and a young man who wasn't even the biological dad. And they'll stop everything they're doing. Everything will come to a halt. Shops will close down. Businesses will shut it down. Everybody will stop to celebrate the birth of this little baby. He never wrote a book, never wrote one word in any book that we know of. He never spoke to a crowd outside of his country. As a matter of fact, he never traveled more than 30 miles from his hometown. And yet billions of people will stop everything they're doing and celebrate Christmas. Any moment, you could pick any moment, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and you will, there will be millions of people around the world studying what he said, reading words that he spoke, worshiping him as God, and, and, and you say, well, why is that? How do you explain that? Because when you really dig down, there's a lot more to the glory of Christmas than just the story of Christmas. You see, too often what we do at Christmas is, is we just kinda stop about a third of the way through the whole story. Christmas was actually the beginning of a round trip that Jesus took from heaven to earth and back to heaven. I want you to imagine that there is a degree in Christmas, that you could get a college degree in Christmas. There would only be three classes. Now, if you've been in this series, we've already taken two of those classes, all right? The first one is what we call Christmas Biology, And we learned in Christmas biology that Jesus was born of a virgin. He had an earthly mother. He had a heavenly father. But unlike any other baby that was born, he was born without a sinful nature. You never had to teach him to tell the truth. He always told the truth. You didn't have to teach him to get along with his brothers and sisters. He always got along with his brothers and his sisters. He was born without a sinful nature. Therefore, he was the sinless Jesus. First class, Christmas biology. Second class, we took that last week. We call that Christmas theology. And in Christmas theology, we learned that he was a human being, just like every baby he is a human being, but he was also the son of God. He was unlike any baby that's ever been born. He was fully human and fully God. Now, most of the time we say, okay, heard it a thousand times, been there, done that, know the story, and we think that's where the Christmas story ends, but it doesn't. Because if you only take those two classes, you don't get a degree in Christmas. Because there's a third class you have to take and you have to know, and that's what we call Christmas doxology. Now, the word doxology literally comes from two Greek words. <clears throat> One means praise. The other means Glory, And so when you put those two words together, it means a word of praise, a word of glory. It's literally a word or an expression of praise and glory. And if you want to understand Christmas doxology, we've got to turn to a man. Some of you have heard of him. His name was Paul. We got to turn to a man who, unlike the shepherds and unlike later on the wise men, he never experienced the birth of Jesus. As a matter of fact, this is kind of interesting As a biblical writer, Paul, who wrote more than half the New Testament, he never explicitly talks about the birth of Jesus. Unlike the disciples, he never physically met the physical Jesus, but he did meet the risen Jesus. Yet when you read Paul and you read his writings, it's real interesting. He never mentions the birth of Jesus, never talks about it. Matter of fact, he, he, he really doesn't even even dwell on the, the birth of Jesus. He doesn't mention Christmas biology. He doesn't really record Christmas theology. But what he does tell us about is the Christmas doxology. And he shows us the full meaning of Christmas. He gives us what I call Christmas completely unwrapped. So if you brought a copy of God's Word, I want you to turn to the New Testament. It begins with the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and I want you to turn to Philippians chapter two. Philippians chapter two. Now, here's what you're going to see. It's what most people miss every single year, and that is Christmas begins with a baby in a cradle, but that's just the beginning of the story. The middle of the story is that the baby in the cradle becomes a savior on a cross, and the end of the story is The savior on a cross becomes a king on a throne because here's what I want you to see. And I'm gonna say this and you're gonna sit there and you go, not really, but it's true. Christmas is more than a day. As a matter of fact, Christmas is more than even a season. Christmas actually is something we ought to celebrate every day of the year because when you really understand Christmas, you realize this is why every day I ought to put my focus on Jesus. This is why every day I ought to place my faith in Jesus. This is why every day I should proclaim my future with Jesus all year round. Because when you read what we're gonna read in Philippians chapter two, Paul says, if you even really wanna graduate with a degree in Christmas, there are three things you ought to do every single day. Number one, we should be thoughtful that Jesus identified with us. We ought to be thoughtful that Jesus identified with us. Now keep in mind, Paul doesn't give any details about Jesus's birth, okay? He leaves that to Matthew and Luke. Here's what they did. They take us back to Bethlehem when Jesus was born. What Paul does is he takes us back before Bethlehem, before Jesus was born. He takes us backstage behind the curtains of eternity. He says, hey, let me show you what took place before that baby was put in that cradle. Let me show you what took place before that Jesus was even born. So he says this in verse five. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, two things jump out immediately. He says, first of all, Jesus was in the form of God. That's a very, very interesting word. It refers to a Roman stamp. And and, and let me explain what that means. Back in the day, whenever a king or a judge or a magistrate or some official person wanted to send a letter to someone, and they wanted that person to know it was an original letter, it was an official letter, and it came from that person, they would take a ring. It would bear the emperor's insignia. They would press it into some hot wax, and then they would put it onto that document, and the impression in the wax would be an exact representation of the insignia of the king. And what Paul is telling us is this. He's telling us that Jesus is the precise representation of God. In other words, Jesus is exactly God. He said he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Just Curious question, how many of you took geometry in, in high school or college? How many of you are glad you never have to take it again? Okay, let's see how, how well you remember your, uh, your uh, geometry. And you remember the word isosceles triangle? You remember the the, the concept of an isosceles triangle? The Greek word for equality is the word isos. It gives us that word for isosceles. An isosceles triangle, if you remember, that is a triangle with two equal sides, right? And the word means equal in size and quality and character. So what Paul is saying is you need to understand That little baby that was born in that cradle was equally God. But he wasn't just equally God, he was eternally God. Before he was laid in that cradle, he was a king on a throne. Before he was a human being, he was God. Now, he did not cling to that equality when he came to planet Earth, but he claimed that equality. And the point that Paul is making is when Jesus became a man, He never quit being God. He didn't lay down his Godhood and say, okay, I'm gonna be a man just for a while. So if you're a mathematics person, when he became a man, there was no subtraction. He was God in all of his fullness. There was no division. He didn't give up his Godhood to make room for his manhood. He was not part human and part divine. He was not a mixture of deity and humanity. He was fully both. But even though there was not subtraction and there was not division, there was addition. When he was born, he was God, but he took on human nature, which he had never before possessed. So in other words, what Paul is saying is, though you may not realize it, what I'm telling you about is the greatest miracle that has ever taken place in the history of the world. There are a lot of great miracles in the Bible. We re, we've read about many of them. The creation of the world, the parting of the Red Sea, Jesus walking on water, even coming back from the dead. They're all great miracles. But Paul is telling us the greatest miracle that's ever happened is the time when God literally became A man. So Jesus is not just a man among men. He's not just first among equals. He's not just the greatest of the great. Jesus Christ is God. Let me put it to you this way. If the FBI had existed 2000 years ago and they had taken the fingerprints of Jesus, you would have had the fingerprints of God. If you could have done a DNA test on Jesus, you would have found the DNA of God, If Jesus had taken an ancestry test, his ancestor would have been one. His ancestor was God because he was God. But the other thing that jumps out is what Paul goes on to say. Listen to this. Rather, that is, rather than just coming as God, being fully God and not a human like us, rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Now, this is what's just unbelievable. When Jesus decided he would join us on the ladder of humanity, he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start out on the lowest run. Even though I'm a king, I'm going to take the form of a slave. Now, we've kind of, that, that word, that translation's kind of cleaned it up a little bit. The word doulos literally means slave. And what puzzled so many people when they met Jesus, by the way, even his own disciples, when they met Jesus, they really thought, hey, we think this is the guy. We we think this is the Messiah. We think this is the one the prophets talked about. We think this is the one that we've been looking for. But what they could not figure out was, 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 but wait a minute. He, He didn't come as a conquering, reigning, honored king. He." He's just a guy. He's just a man like us. We thought he'd be surrounded with servants, but he is a servant. He, he, he took the form of a servant. He lived just like a slave. And because remember back in that day, slaves owned nothing. They had nothing. Jesus never owned anything. Have you ever thought about this or not? Everything Jesus ever had, Jesus borrowed it or somebody gave it to him. He borrowed a place to be born. He borrowed places to sleep. He borrowed a boat to cross the Sea of Galilee. He borrowed a donkey to ride in a town. He borrowed a room to have the last meal he would ever have. He even had to borrow a tomb to be buried in. He came as a slave and yet we're told he was made in human likeness. That word likeness means but to be exactly like what it appears to be. In other words, he was not a clone. He, he, he was a human being. He was real flesh, real blood, human, just like you and me. I told you last week <clears throat> that's what is so unique to Christianity is not just the belief that Jesus was God, but that in God, in Jesus, God became a human being. See, every other religion in the world expects their God to be just that, He be God. Don't be a man. I need a man. Be God, and yet Christianity is the only religion that says no. If you want to know God as God, you've also got to know God as a full human being. God did not just come as a human being, but the lowest of human beings, and that's why the religions say, "But that's so ungodlike." No, it really isn't. That's exactly what God is like, and we're the only religion in the world. If you want to call us a religion, which we're really not. Christianity is the only faith in the world that says if you want to know the real God, the true God, the only God, he came as a human being just like us. But the Christmas birth begs a Christmas question. Why did God do that? Why would God identify with us as a human being? Why didn't he just come as God? Why would the Son of God leave the glory of heaven to come to earth as a son of man? Why on earth would God leave a throne as a king and come to earth as a slave? Why in the world would Jesus leave a place where he was exalted to come to a place where he was executed? Well, that's the second part of the doxology of Christmas because not only should we be thoughtful that Jesus identified with us. He came to be a human just like us, but we ought to be thankful that Jesus was crucified for us. He came to be identified with us, but he came to be crucified for us. See, Jesus is the only human that was born ever that did not have to die. I got news for all of us. We're all going to die unless Jesus comes back first we're all going to die. And it's not because we choose to die. We have to die. We don't have a choice in the matter. We have to die. He did not come because he had to die. He came so he could die. So here's what Paul says. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even the death of God. On a cross. Now, when Paul says Jesus humbled himself, that may be the most, that may be the biggest understatement in all of the Bible. Let me tell you how Jesus humbled himself. He went from sitting on a throne to lying in a manger to hanging on a tree. He went from being a king with a crown to a baby with diapers to a falsely accused criminal on the cross. Simple question. Why did he do that? Because your soul was more important than his blood. Because your eternal life was more important than his earthly life. Because your place in heaven was more important than his place in heaven. In other words, you ready for this? He gave up his place so you could have your place. He gave up your place so you you could have your place. In other words, the one person who had the right to to demand his rights gave up his rights for us. He never played the God card. He humbled himself by obeying God to the point of death. Because understand something, You and I have to die. We don't have a choice in the matter. He did. He didn't have to die. He even said, no man can take my life from me. You can't hurt me. You can't harm me. My life belongs to me. So what happened was, when his father asked him to leave the glory of heaven for the grief on earth, he said, yes. When the father asked him, will you die for sins that they committed, he said, yes. Yes, God the Father did not coerce the Son to die. He did not force the Son to die. It was the Father's will that he die, but it was the Son's decision to carry out the Father's will. God never commanded Jesus to die. God never compelled Jesus to die. God never said to the Son, you must die. The Roman soldiers did not overpower Jesus. They did not force him to the cross. As a matter of fact, you know what really happened? Jesus actually overpowered the Roman soldiers and allowed them to take him to the cross. He didn't have to do it. It was strictly up to him. But the point that Paul is making is you cannot separate the birth of Jesus from the death of Jesus. Let me tell you why. Without the incarnation, that is, if Jesus had not become human, Without the incarnation, the crucifixion would have been meaningless. As a matter of fact, it would have never happened because God can't die and the resurrection would have never happened. The incarnation, that is everything. God became a human being, not just to live with us, but to die for us. It was as a man that Jesus died, but it was as God he died for us. So the cradle without the cross is incomplete, but the cross without the cradle is ineffective. And then Paul goes on to say this, he said, oh, by the way, he didn't just die, he died the death on a cross. He didn't die a peaceful death on a soft bed, surrounded by friends and family, giving giving him a tearful goodbye, he died the worst form of torturous death you can imagine. To this day, experts on dying say that crucifixion is still the most cruel, excruciatingly painful, shameful form of execution ever conceived by humanity. As a matter of fact, it was such a low form of death. It was reserved for slaves and for the worst of criminals. If you were a Roman citizen, you could not be crucified no matter how bad a crime you committed because the Roman Empire believed Even a Roman soldier is above this kind of dying. We reserve this kind of death for the lowest of the low. I mean, that's what makes the cross so amazing. Because to go back, before you and I were even created, before this world came into existence, Jesus was at the very top of the organizational chart of the universe. He was God, but at the end of his life, he was dragging a wooden cross across a dirt road to die for sins, he didn't even commit. But he never pulled rank. He never asked to be first in line. He never demanded his right. He always leveraged who he was. He always leveraged the power that he had for the good of others and for the glory of God. And that's when you begin to unwrap not just Christmas gifts, that's when you begin to unwrap the gift of Christmas. When you finally wake up and realize, hey, wait a minute, I get it. Christmas is not just about what Jesus has done for me. Christmas is now about what I can do for Jesus because the way he lived his life is the way I should live my life. And that's why Paul begins this entire passage with this verse. He says, in your relationships with one another, in the way you relate to your family, in the way you relate to your friends, in the way you relate to the people that you work with, in the way you relate to your neighbors, in the way you relate to the people that you go to school with, thank you, in the way you relate to the people that you go to school with, in your relationships have the same relationship you have with God. Because this is what Jesus did. He did two things in his life. He was obeying God, and serving others. He spent his entire life doing those two things, obeying God and serving others. Let me tell you what that means, okay? We're not God, but we can be gracious. No, we're not heavenly, but we can be humble. And no, we're not sovereigns, but we can be servants. And if you will unwrap the gift of Christmas, and you begin to sing the Christmas doxology, here's what will happen. You'll start living the way Jesus lived. You'll start acting the way Jesus acted. You'll start thinking the way that Jesus thought. You'll start talking the way Jesus talked. Be thoughtful that Jesus identified with us. Be thankful that Jesus was crucified For us, But then Paul goes on to say, be mindful that Jesus is magnified over us. Now listen, it's great that we can celebrate that baby in a cradle. I love it. We ought to be grateful for that Savior who died on a cross. We ought to rejoice that Jesus came back from the dead. But if you're going to fully unwrap the gift of Christmas, you can't leave Jesus in a cradle. You can't leave Jesus on a cross. You can't even leave Jesus in a cave. You've got to leave Jesus on a throne. You've gotta get him out of the cradle, off the cross, out of the tomb, and on to a throne. And that's why Paul reaches the climax of everything he says about Jesus with these words. Now listen to this, he says, therefore, now let me just stop, therefore what? Therefore, in light of the fact that Jesus identified with us, in light of the fact that Jesus was crucified for us, in light of the fact that he left heaven and came to earth, in light of the fact that he wasn't just God, he was man, in light of the fact he did everything for us so he could be with us and we could be with him, in light of that fact, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That word therefore says, look, in light of the fact that Jesus was willing to go so low, he went to the lowest rung he could get to, now he is exalted and elevated as the highest of all and the highest of everybody and the highest of everything. And he said, God has even given Jesus the name which is above every name. Now listen, this is where a lot of people don't understand. It is not the name Jesus that is above every name. I've told you before, Jesus was a very common name. A lot of boys ran around with the name Jesus. The name that is above every name is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus is his earthly name, Lord is his heavenly name. Jesus is his human name, Lord is his heavenly name. As Jesus, he is our redeemer, but as Lord, he is our ruler. He was born as a human so he could relate to us. He died as a savior so he could redeem over us. He was raised as Lord to rule over us. And that's how the entire world is going to respond to him. Now this is what Paul says, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth. Now, when you bow the knee, you know what you're doing, right? You are surrendering to whoever you're bowing the knee to. When you wanna honor someone, when you want to exalt someone, when you wanna elevate someone and lift someone up, you bow the knee before them. And Paul doesn't miss, miss words. He said, every knee is going to bow, whether by choice or by force. Every knee above us in heaven, whether it's angels or spirits, every knee around us, whether it's a believer or an unbeliever, every knee under us, whether it's the devil or all of his demons, he says every knee is going to bow and every knee is going to surrender to the lordship of Jesus. And then to emphasize this, he says, by the way, it won't be done silently. It won't be done in your heart. It won't be done so that nobody else will know what you're doing. He says, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now you say, well, what does every tongue mean? It means every tongue. It means every atheist tongue and every agnostic tongue and every demonic tongue and every human tongue is going to confess four words, Jesus, Christ is Lord. Let's just say that together. Jesus Christ is Lord. Now let's say it like we mean it. Jesus Christ is Lord. Get used to that. Rehearse that. Because one of these days, the entire universe is going to say that, and at that point, The round trip of Christmas, the round trip of Christmas will be complete. That baby that was crying in a cradle, that man that was dying on a cross, that man that came back from the dead will be back where he was always been in eternity and will always be in eternity reigning on a throne. And then Paul adds these words, it's all done. Now listen, this is the most important part. It is all done to the glory of God the Father. Now you say, why is that most important? Because the purpose of this universe and the purpose of all of history and the purpose of your life and my life is to bring glory to God. You were put here for one primary reason, one, to bring glory to God. That's your purpose. And when you fully unwrap the the gift of Christmas, then you'll understand Christmas is not primarily about giving Christmas gifts to each other. It is primarily about giving God the glory for his gift of Christmas to us. Now, let me just kind of wrap this up, tell you something that you didn't know. When you get past the first chapter of Matthew, and you get past the first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke, In the rest of the New Testament, the rest of the Bible, you never read about any other baby being born. There are no more recorded births after the birth of Jesus. When you go to Matthew one and you go to Luke chapter one and you read about the genealogy of Jesus, there are no more genealogies in the entire Bible. Why is that? It's almost as if the New Testament writers are telling us, hey, this is the ultimate birth. There's never been any other birth like this birth. This is the birth of all births, before his birth and after his birth because this birth brought the creator into the world he created and he became like us so we could become just like him. So I want to tell you a story, true story. And and, and frankly, it, 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 when, you, when I tell you the story, you're going to find it hard to believe because I find it hard to believe, but it is a true story. There was a, a great plastic surgeon that lived a long time ago. His name was Dr. Maxwell Maltz. If you are into medicine or in plastic surgery, you will have heard of Dr. Maxwell Maltz. He, he tells, and Dr. Maltz tells this true story, unbelievable story, There was a man who had been injured in a fire. His parents' house caught on fire, and he happened to be there. And in in trying to save his parents from this burning house, they actually died. He was not able to save them. But in the process, his face was burned. And his face was totally, permanently disfigured. Well, for some reason, he got the impression that this was God's punishment on his life because he had not always lived for the Lord. he had not always lived for God. And so somehow he thought, okay, this is God's retribution. This is God's punishment. And so after his face was so disfigured, he wouldn't let anybody see him. Not even his own wife. He would not let anybody in to see him at all. He was in a deep depression he didn't really he wasn 't sleeping well, he didn't eat a lot, he was totally antisocial he just became kind of a hermit. so his uh, wife went to dr Malt. she'd heard about him, and so she went to see him and see if he could help and she told him the story and he said, "You know I believe I can restore his face to where he'd be willing to see other people." Well, she knew that wouldn't help because he refused any help. he was convinced that you know this was God 's punishment for him, and so she said no. That really won't help me. So Dr. Maltz said, well, I don't understand. Why did you come to see me? And he couldn't believe what she said. She said, Dr. Maltz, I want you to disfigure my face just like his. He said, what? She said, you heard me. She said, I want you to disfigure my face so I can be just like him. Because maybe... If I can look like him and hurt like him, maybe he'll let me back into his life. Well, Dr. Maltz was shocked. And of course, you know, he he denied her request. But he was so moved by the love that this woman had for her husband. He said, where do you live? And she said, why? He said, just tell me where you live. And she wrote down the address. He said, when my office hours are done today, I'm coming to your house. She said, why? He said, "Just, just trust me. So that afternoon, after he saw his last patient, took off his smock, got on his coat, drove to this man's house, knocked on the door. She let him in. He went to the man's bedroom door. He knocked on the door. He said, sir, my name is Dr. Maxwell Maltz. I'm a plastic surgeon. And he said, I want you to know, I believe all of my heart. I can restore your face where nobody would would, would, would mind seeing you at all. I can help you. Would you let me help you? There was no response. Dr. Maltz said, Sir, please come out. Look, don't worry about me. I've seen a lot of faces before. It's not gonna bother me at all. Just let, let, Please just let me come in and talk to you. Again, there was no answer. So he didn't know what to do and he thought for a moment and, and then he said, Sir, let me tell you about your wife and let me tell you what she did. He said, she came to my office today and she asked me to disfigure her face And make her face look like your face so you will let her back into your life. That's how much she loves you. If you care anything about her, please open that door. And there was a moment of silence. And the doorknob began to turn. And the man came out. When I read that story, I thought to myself, you know, the way that woman loved her husband tells us just a fraction of how much God loves us, except he didn't just make the offer. He took on our face. He disfigured himself. He became like us. He suffered like us. He died like us. He died for us so we could be just like him and live with him forever. That is the Christmas doxology. And now we have Christmas unwrapped. Let's pray together.